Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of God. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Amen. Now, it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we not only pause before you, but we come directly into your presence. We are granted this access because of the blood and the work of Christ, the torn veil that allows us to come to you in the Holy of Holies. Remind us, Lord, that just in the previous chapter in Romans, Romans 8, your Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, speaking words that we don't understand, words that we may not know. And so we rely on you, Holy Spirit, to speak for us this morning. Christ, as you also sit at the right hand of the throne, interceding for us, we are comforted, knowing that we have access and welcome to the Father. Lord, you also taught us in your own prayer that we are to seek the Father's will, not our own. So, Lord, your will this morning. Empower Matthew with your words. Empower Matthew with your wisdom as he brings your word to us this morning. Amen. Thank you, brother. How are we doing? We are born with questions. Well, maybe it's more accurate to say that we are born with curiosity and the questions quickly followed. Almost from the moment that little humans are able to talk, some of the first words that they utter are in the form of questions. They only need one word to do so, right, parents? What is that one word that they need? Why? Why, Daddy? Because this. What? But why? Because this. But why? Why do you keep asking why? <laughs> Which I think is a kind of sad thing that happens in our culture. We respond that way. It, it's almost as if we discourage this curiosity that leads to questions. Maybe it's something that we do inadvertent as parents. We didn't mean to do it, but we just got tired of the questions and we unintentionally shut the questions down. And that happens not just in our homes, but it happens elsewhere. 
all over our culture. It happens in the church, which I also think is really sad, that people would come in to Grace Church on a Sunday morning like this, and they would think maybe that their questions here are taboo. Maybe you're here and you feel like maybe there are some things that you aren't supposed to ask. Maybe because you think you're not supposed to wonder about the thing that you're asking about. Maybe you were taught it was wrong to ask at some other church or some other place. Or maybe you feel too embarrassed to ask because you feel like you're already supposed to know the answer to the question. And you've been shamed that way before. Maybe because of a past experience, you don't feel safe enough to ask. And I get that. I feel that way, felt that way in the church that I grew up in. Questions like, why does God do what he does? Why does it seem like the Bible says one thing, but my life reveals the opposite thing? And because that happens, why is it that I feel like I can't trust him? Why should I pray if it doesn't seem to change things? Why should I read the Bible if it doesn't seem to apply to my life? And on and on and on with those kinds of questions, which are actually really important questions, good questions, valid questions. I thought of another one this week. When I was thinking about this moment, looking out at all of you with so many different stories, Right? Just look out at all of you. We look at each other. There are so many. Every one of you is a different, unique story. And you have so many different things that you're facing and, and so many concerns, which means there's probably so many questions in this room. And here's the question that I thought of this week. On your behalf, directed at me. Why is Romans 9 to 11 here? Maybe you've been reading ahead in Romans, you've asked that question. And then more questions follow. Why should I care about Israel anyway? I mean, what is, what is three chapters in the Bible on Israel, this people in a land that I've never been to that happened centuries ago? What does that have to do with my life right now? I got problems now that I don't think have anything to do with Israel. Why is this here? Why should I be interested in what Paul is exploring? I mean, when I read Romans chapter 1 to 8, that was awesome. Like, it was so filled with theology, and it seemed like everything that I needed was there, and it was all tied up in a bow right at the end. Like, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Messiah Jesus, our Lord. Boom! Chapter 12, let's go live my life. Give me practical, nitty-gritty theology. It's right there in 12 to 16. I've read ahead, Pastor. Why 9 to 11? Well, those are good questions, and I'm glad you've asked them. <laughs> because asking questions isn't something that we should ever stop doing. Being curious about why things are, what's being said, how it's being said, where it's being said, is really, this question asking is really the most powerful tool that you have for Bible study. 
Sometimes people say, Pastor, I don't know how, I don't know how you see what you see in the Bible. You know what my answer is? I ask questions. That's it. I spend hours asking questions and hours spending the time trying to get at the answers to those questions. It's your most powerful Bible study tool. Actually, it's one of the most powerful tools you have for living as a disciple of Jesus. Asking questions. Ask questions when you come to the Bible. Ask questions when you think about our beliefs, your experience. Ask questions when you come to God. Ask Him questions. Ask Him why. He's a Father that won't shut you down. Well, I have a few questions for you this morning. Do you remember, do you remember who Paul was writing to in this letter? Do you remember why he was writing? Do you recall the context of this letter? Well, maybe that's not a fair question because that was in October of 2022. So let me answer. It's important to remember that Paul was writing to a church in Rome just as a large number of Jews were returning to the city after having been expelled years before. He's writing to non-Jewish Christians and Jewish Christians who are trying to get along now in the same church family. And he's writing so that they will be united as a church family and understand their place in the story that God is weaving and telling the story of his salvation in the world. And he's writing all of it, we're going to find out in chapter 15, because it's one grand greatest missionary letter ever written because he wants their support, financial and otherwise, to go to Spain to proclaim this great good news. And so when his letter arrives and Phoebe begins to read it to the church, I'd like you to imagine them so imagine, it would have been a much smaller group, it would have been smaller groups, little house churches, Phoebe would have been reading to. Imagine them responding with questions. I love how Michael Bird imagines this. To the recipients of Paul's letter, skipping over the Israel question, which is in Romans 9 to 11, would be like ignoring the elephant in the room. If Phoebe, reading Paul's passionate and personal letter aloud to the Romans, right, Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Christians, had decided to skip over what we now know as chapters 9 to 11, right, and we know it as that because there were no chapters and verses in the original text, it was just a letter, just like you write a letter. You don't put chapters and verses when you write letters to people, do you? At least I hope you don't, that'd be weird. Sooner or later, if, if he would have skipped over this question, sooner or later someone would have had to butt in and said... Uh, uh, Paul, or excuse me, Phoebe, uh, wait a second there. What about Israel? I mean, you know, if God's righteousness is so righteous, and if God's faithfulness is so faithful, then why have the Israelites missed the proverbial boat? Why are most of the Jews that we know in Rome antagonistic toward your message about their Messiah? When Jewish followers of Jesus first came to Rome, we Gentiles heard the message with gladness. We thought it was awesome. Jesus gives us eternal life and an inheritance among the people of Israel all by faith. But it did lead to quite a kerfuffle in the Roman synagogues, bitter divisions, public brawling. And it resulted in the imperial expulsion of several Christian leaders from the city as a result. 
Even worse, some of us have been told never to return to the synagogues because we're now apostate. So when it comes to Israel's cold shoulder to Messiah, Jesus, well, what's up with that, Phoebe? And how does that square with God's righteousness and faithfulness to his chosen people? That would have been the question if Paul had skipped over the Israel question. And you have to admit, those are some pretty good questions. And see... You see, I think Paul knew those questions would be in the room. That's, what Paul, that's what's so smart about Paul. It, who here likes conflict? I'm glad to see nobody raising a hand. <laughs> nobody really likes conflict, right? So we don't like, like when there's that question that you know is going to be asked, we don't bring it up. We hope it doesn't get brought up. Paul doesn't operate that way. He knows the questions that are going to be brought up, and he addresses them. And so if you're asking why Romans 9 to 11, here's a part of that answer, which was got a little bit to in these questions of Phoebe. See, I think Paul means to show, I think Paul means to show that God isn't done with the Israelites. Okay, I didn't say Israel. I said Israelites. And we're going to get into this in Romans 9 to 11. We have to be careful not to tie an understanding of Israelites to a political nation state necessarily. Israelites are the holy people of God and an ethnic people of God, certainly. Paul means to show that those Israelites, that God isn't done with them. I also think that Paul means to show us, show us, therefore, that God is faithful to his word and faithful to his promises. Because if Israel has all of a sudden been left behind, if God were done with them, then his faithfulness could rightly be questioned by them and by us. In the words of an anonymous Palestinian Jew of the first century urging God to be merciful to his people, Quote, for even if you plant another vine, Gentiles like us, it will not trust you because you destroyed the former one. That's what would happen. So Paul has to address that. And as we make our way into Romans chapter 9 to 11, I want you to note something else that is so very important about what Paul is doing here as he answers the questions. Namely, it's not just what he is saying in the content of the words. It's not just the content of the words themselves, but it's how he's saying it. My mother would be so happy when she would always say, it's not what you said, it's how you said it. (laughs) That's important, right? It's, It's not just what you said, it's how Paul is saying it. It's how he's constructing the response. It's where he's taking us as he does so. You see, if you look at Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, look at it there in your paper Bible, I hope, what Paul is doing is recounting and summarizing the entire story of the Bible from the very beginning up to the time, life, and ministry of the Messiah, Jesus, in two sentences. He wants us to remember and understand where we are in the story so that we might orient ourselves to God and his work in this world. That we might orient ourselves to his character, the way that he operates. Because what we're about to see is that these eight benefits that he lists, which made up what it was to be an Israelite. If you want to know what it means to be an Israelite, here's the eight things 
They are massively encouraging in relationship to God's works and ways, and they build our confidence in God as one who cares. He is one who cares for his people. He is consistent and steady and reliable. And these benefits actually pull us into the overall history of God and his dealings then, which is utterly foundational. I see, this is why I think it's so important what Paul is doing, because when we see that, his faithfulness to them then, that's foundational for how we understand his faithfulness to us now as his people. Look with me, Romans 9. I speak the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. You see, part, part of why it is so shocking that they are cut off from all the promises of God that are yes and amen in Jesus, part of why Paul's heart hurts so badly for them is because they are Israelites and to them belong, okay, listen to this now, listen to all of the benefits that were theirs that would make you think that they would continue right on with Jesus, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Messiah. Jesus is an Israelite who is God over all praised forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We must not miss what Paul is doing here. (laughs) It's so good. He's showing us why this is important for us. He's bringing us back to the story of the Israelites. And what we'll learn as he continues in these chapters is that our story is not disconnected from theirs. Because we're all searching after and depending upon the same God. Isn't this what Paul has already said? He is the father of us all. We're all his people, his children, his family. But it began first with Israel. It began first with Israelites, not Jews per se, right? That, I don't know if you know this, but that's what other people called them. They didn't own that word. The honorific title that they referred to each other as was Israelites. We are Israelites, the people of God. It's a title that is the summation of all of these benefits to which we now turn. To the Israelites belong the adoption. As disciples of Jesus and readers of Paul, we love this word, do we not? Do we not just hear about this word in Romans chapter 8? It has glorious implications and promise for us. But before it was said of us, it was a reality for the Israelites. Exodus 4, 22, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. Hosea 11:1. 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Deuteronomy 14, you are the sons of Yahweh your God. You are a holy people belonging to Yahweh your God. Yahweh has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Jeremiah 31, 9, I will lead them to wadis filled with water by a smooth way where they will not stumble for I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn. Glory 
What amazing benefits come to them as Israelites, as the children of God. And to the Israelites, Paul says, belong the glory. The glory. The glory is what let them know they were not alone as humans. The glory showed them that there was, in fact, a divine creator from whom the world was born and from whom they had life. The glory was the visible display of the power and transcendence of God overall and the presence of God among his people. The glory was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The glory was what descended on Mount Sinai as a dark cloud along with thunder, lightning, and booming voice. The glory was what filled the tabernacle and took away the breath of God's people in its revelation. The glory was what rested on the mercy seat of the ark between the cherubim and seraphim on the ark of the covenant in the temple of the Most High. And the glory is what will appear at the restoration of all creation, enveloping the people of God in euphoric joy. Isaiah 60, 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of Yahweh shines over you. For look, darkness will cover the earth and total darkness of peoples, but Yahweh will shine over you and his glory will appear over you. John Murray says that the glory was the sign of God's presence with Israelites and certified to them that God dwelt among them and met with them. And to the Israelites belonged the glory. And to the Israelites belonged the covenants. Nothing is more characteristic of God's special relationship with his people than the covenants. Covenants are the legally binding agreements of God with his people to bring about very specific realities in their lives based on their faithfulness to its stipulations. They are vows that God Almighty has made with his people over time for what he will do for them and who he will be in relationship to them as the story marches on through history. The covenants are so critical for us to understand so that we know where we are in the story of God as we situate ourselves in the covenant that was given to Adam in Genesis and then was given to Abraham in Genesis 15 and to Isaac and Jacob in Exodus 6 and with Israel at Sinai in Exodus 19 and looking forward to a new covenant spoken of through the prophets in Jeremiah 31. All of them just a different way of saying these very powerful words of acceptance over his people. You will be my people and I will be your God. To the Israelites belong the covenants. And to the Israelites belong the giving of the law. When you come to the Bible, you should ask questions. We've said that, right? Every word in the Bible is important. Everyone. How many times have I gotten excited over a conjunction with you? Isn't it interesting that he says to the Israelites belong the giving of the law. Paul seems to emphasize the God-given nature of the law. (laughs) So often, isn't isn't this true? Parents especially, you know this. Isn't it true that we often have negative connotations when a law is handed down? 
<laughs> and now as you sit there, you know, arrogant about your kids acting that way to a law that you put down, how did you feel when you were driving down the road and you saw the speed limit sign? 25? Come on, can't I go at least 35 in town? I've never lived in a town that it was 25 miles an hour. I can walk faster. We often see the giving of law as a negative, but Paul doesn't look at it that way. To Paul, despite what others may say about him because of his proclamation of the good news of Jesus, he still believes that the giving of the law is a benefit. The giving of the law brings life. The giving of the law is the giving of the very words of God, words that display his character. If you want to know what God is like, read his laws. They show us who he is and how to be like him and to live in a way that is thus in his image and therefore truly human. Isn't this not what Paul already said in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? What's the advantage of being a Jew? Great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the law, the very words and whole revelation of God. Amen. To the Israelites belonged the inestimable privilege. You think about this. No other people on earth had the words of God. To the Israelites belong the temple service, or we could say worship. Humanity was separated from its one and only God by their sin and His holiness. They could not meet. They could not come together until worship was described and prescribed until an entire set of regulations and sacrificial system was put into place so that sinful humans could enter in to a relationship in the very presence of the God, the one, only, holy God, Yahweh, who had made them. The building of a temple, the order of worship, the means for cleansing and purification, the lifting of sin, the assurance of pardon, the means of praise and adoration. What a gift! What a benefit! No other people knew how to enter into relationship with the only true God except Israel. To the Israelites belong worship. And to the Israelites belong the promises, which undoubtedly refers to all the promises of blessing given to Abraham and the other patriarchs of the faith, that he would inherit the world as the father of many nations and the blessing of God would flow to all through him, that he would be extremely fruitful and that nations and kings would come from him, Genesis 17, 5 and Romans 4, that in this way a promise would become kind of a multiplied promise that would make its way out through the generations and to the nations. To the Israelites belong the ancestors. The ancestors are theirs. In recent years, it's become a little bit popular to know where you came from. You, you can go to websites like Ancestry or My Heritage or, or Legacy, Legacy Tree to, to help you understand and disclose your roots, to go into the distant past, maybe to discover and unlock some unknown benefit. I'm hoping for some rich uncle somewhere. <laughs> but what a benefit to call Abraham and Isaac and Jacob your forefathers, to realize that you stand in their line, that you receive their inheritance, that you connect your present to their past because these men are your fathers. 
that you descend from the very persons to whom the covenants and all the promises were given. They are Israelites and the ancestors are theirs. This is... Okay, I don't know if you're getting as excited as I was this week and looking at this, but I love this. I love this about the Bible, and I love this about Paul. I love that we've been transported back, like, right? We've been transported back into the story, back in time to the centuries of what? The story of the faithfulness of God. That's what Paul has done in just two sentences. All of that coming rushing in the story of the God who cares for his people, the God who is consistent and steady and reliable benefits to Israelites, elaborating this in detail. But details that are only a summary of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of his faithfulness. So that N.T. Wright can say, it is of primary importance in reading Romans 9 to 11 to realize that its backbone is a retelling of the story of Israel from Abraham to Paul's present day, a retelling of the great narrative that every Jew knew. It is a story meant to pull us into the overall story of God's ways and thus his character and dealings in this world, not merely to Paul's present day, y'all, but to ours. And it therefore follows that this is central to how God works now and that the story and the way Paul tells the story will answer the kind of questions that we asked at the beginning. Questions of whether or not Israel missed the boat. They've given the cold shoulder to Messiah Jesus. Questions of God's righteousness and faithfulness. Questions that get to the entire character of God. Questions of how he works now and who he is now. And we need to be able to account for this when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes under scrutiny in our day. Oh, God. You guys, don't just spend time in the New Testament. I'm pleading with you. Know the whole Bible. When my, when my kids grew up and I would say a blessing over them, I had these little blessing cards. In, in one of the cards, I always, from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Malachi, the God who is the God of, your God to this day. Why did I do that? Because I wanted them to know who God was, how long he's been around, the tree they'd been grafted into, the fall of history that they were a part of. So they wouldn't be chronological snobs. All they care about is their time period. And these questions are asked not only by us, but by a watching world who sees our lives and how this God that we proclaim appears to them to operate. Can you imagine? This is so relevant. Can't you imagine? Maybe this has happened to you. Someone saying this. You say there are all these benefits to being a disciple of Jesus and going to church and reading the Bible and praying. All of these promises and covenants and words and adoption and glory. But I look at your life and it looks just like mine. It looks hard. Like mine is hard. I see suffering and difficulty and hardship. I see conflict and pain and grief. I see sickness and divorce and porn. It seems that your God doesn't take care of his people. 
that your God doesn't care for his children. You say he promises, you pray for him to be with you, but where is he? You say that he's helpful to you, where's the help? Hasn't his word to you failed? Hasn't your God failed? Family, those are good questions. Those are valid questions that the watching world has for us. Those are important questions, and it is important to answer them. And that has to start with ourselves. We have to answer them for ourselves first. We have to answer them for other believers and then for unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. And that is why Romans 9 to 11 is here, in the way that it is here, and the content within it. It's not because God needs defending by Paul or by us. He doesn't. He can take care of himself. It's because we need understanding for our sakes, and to properly represent and proclaim him to the world through thoughtful explanation and faith and trust expressed not only in our words and explanations, but by how we live in accordance with these expressed beliefs in the faithfulness of God. So we need to ask ourselves some diagnostic questions. Are we calm? Are we settled? Are we free from anxiety or are we pulsing with worry? Do we exhibit contentedness? Is there restfulness in us or do we grumble? Are we angry? Are we irritable, frustrated? Do we rage at the traffic in front of us or the weather around us? <laughs> okay, come on now. I mean, really, really. Is there another display in this world where God deals more directly with us on a daily, minute-by-minute basis in his sovereignty and care than in the weather? I mean, come on. And how many of us grumble every day that the temp ain't what it should be or the wind ain't what it should be, Salidans? Do you know what that is? Yes. It's not trusting in the faithfulness of God. God, really? 72? I was really looking for 74 today. We laugh, but it's true. It's a problem. It's a problem. see, how we live our lives is itself a statement on what we truly believe about God and about who we are in relationship to Him and what He's up to, about His promises to us, His faithfulness. And these realities, what we believe about God and His faithfulness, what we believe about the reliability of His Word in the nitty-gritty of our everyday lives, the tensions that we feel between our experience and His expressed Word, those tensions... Do you feel those tensions? Come on. Do you feel those tensions? I feel those tensions. Such things 
as the tensions between our experience and His expressed Word will not magically resolve themselves. Okay, family? They won't magically just resolve themselves. Deep foundational questions are not quickly nor easily answered in meaningful, transformative ways. Brothers and sisters, let me implore you. We need to think these things through. We need to draw out connections. We need to get a sense of the implications for the conclusions that we come to. And doing that kind of work as a believer takes time and wrestling and prayerfully working those things through and working them out. And it will take more than your investment of time in your presence here on a Sunday morning. You're going to have to do that work between Sundays. And I know, listen, I know that can be hard in the midst of all the concerns that might plague your ability to thoughtfully work things out that way because of all the other things that pull at you in your full and sometimes hectic and stressful and chaotic lives. I know that. I know that as a single mom with kids, as a business owner stretched thin, as a retired person struggling with a sickness that depletes you of all your energy and joy, as a father with a complicated job and a big, busy family, as a, well, just fill in the blank with your situation. Okay, I get that. I'm one of you. Just another husband, father, friend, pastor, son, brother, community member, juggling a host of responsibilities and doing my best to find and trust God in all of it. I needed that song, Come As You Are, so bad this morning. Because I'm a sinner and I need grace. And it's exactly why Romans 9 to 11 is so important. It's what Paul is doing here. It's why he doesn't rush headlong into chapter 12 and following. He has written this first and foremost because he cares about Israelites and their unbelief. They have a particular need to hear what God is up to and that he's not done with them yet. But in instructing them, he's also instructing all of us. He's addressing something all of us need fleshed out about the faithfulness of God so we might live in the peace and the security of the faithfulness of God so we can have that built into us. It's, it's like building a really beautiful custom-made home, one that you just absolutely love to look at. Anybody else drive around just to look at houses, right? Like really beautiful properties. I know I'm not alone, okay? Because there are channels filled on the internet, like and on cable TV, right, about beautiful homes being built. And I know you guys are watching them because it's really, I mean, they're beautiful, Right? I have the privilege of one of my closest friends being a home builder. Paul has taken me out on his job sites and he's showed me these really beautiful aspects of a home, all the kinds of details that, that go into it, like, and, and, like all the kind of above ground things. But the really great thing about walking with him on a job site is that he's also, he takes me to see all the things that you don't see 
that make the things you do see beautiful, right? Like, like footings that go down deep to hold everything in place, like a, a foundation that has to get laid in upon which all the other things are building. I hear from him the stories about the days and the weeks and the months spent with architects working for hours and hours and hours on plans before you even see anything. <laughs> We're walking through and notice this one little kind of beautiful corner thing on the entrance to a bathroom. And he explained the hours and hours of calculations that it took to get just that teeny little feature exactly the way that it was. And it's just like this when you're trying to build a solid, beautiful human. You know, maybe we, we have this tendency to look at someone like I think of some of my heroes of the faith, contemporaries who have discipled me and shaped me, people like Ray Ortland and Greg Heinch and John Piper and Eugene Peterson, my father, Ron Dobson, Jen Wilkin, Susan Molesky. I'm sure you could think of people that you know too, people whose lives seem so beautiful, they seem so strong, the pieces of who they are so attractive and they carry about them stunning features like happiness and settledness and completeness and sureness. And you see, they could, they would, if they, if they could walk you through the quarters of their lives, do you know what they would do? They would point you to the effort it took to lay in the foundation for that to put the footings of faith deep. They would share of years of pouring over God's words given to them, of contemplating the adoption granted them, of memorizing the promises made to them, of enjoying the worship that is afforded to them, to reveling in the glory revealed to them, to delighting in the ancestors from who they have come, all of it sealed in times of prayer, bonded with suffering that taught them to trust, upheld by communities of faith that held them fast. You see, they took time to know the story. They took the time to make the connections and they keep on making the connections. They understand the glory of what Paul has done. They see why Romans 9 to 11 is vital. What is here and the way that it is here. And more than anything, they would say, I think, I think they would see the final privilege that was given to the Israelites as the greatest privilege of all because it unlocks all of the rest of it to the Israelites from them by physical descent came the Messiah, the Messiah, who is God over all, praised forever. And all God's people said, Amen. See, this is the last and greatest benefit because it's the benefit of a different kind. It's not a benefit that belonged to them, but it's one that comes from them, but does not belong only to them. You see, the flow of God's actions, the flow of his story and all of history is leading into the ocean of the grace of Jesus. It's all flowing into him. Jesus is the focus of Israel's adoption as the one who fulfills Israel's calling as the son of God, Matthew 2.15. Jesus is the presence on earth of the divine glory, John 1.14. Jesus is the climax of the covenants who brings in a new covenant which fulfills all of the previous covenants and all that they intended, Matthew 26.28. Jesus is the goal and the purpose of the law, Romans 10.4. Jesus is the fulfillment of the priesthood and sacrifices and is thus the center of our worship. You guys, there are no other people on earth who know how to worship God but Christians. 
What a benefit! And Jesus is the confirmation of the promises of the patriarchs, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Every one of God's promises is yes in him. Do you see why Romans 9 to 11 is here yet? Are you getting excited to study these chapters yet? I'm going to preach a sermon for you. That's three months long. You just got the introduction. It's why Romans 9, 4, and 5 is here. It's why Romans 9 through 11 will be so utterly important. Worship team, would you come up? And relevant to us. Because in answer to the question, in answer to the question, if Israel has not believed, then has the word of God failed Paul is going to argue in the chapters ahead, it is not as if the word of God has failed. And three chapters will be the ground for why he can say that. Which is why we must give our time and our thought and our attention here when we gather. And it's why I tell you every Sunday, Read ahead. Read ahead. I read Romans 9 to 11 for probably the 25th time this morning before coming to the building. And I saw at least 10 new things. It's going to be good. What Paul wants us to wrestle with in the story of God's plan to save Israelites and Gentiles is absolutely vital for us as disciples moving one step closer to Jesus. Because if he cannot be trusted, why should we move closer? What would be the point? But if he can, if he is faithful, then it's well with our souls. If he is faithful, then we can understand that he's sovereignly faithful over us. If he is faithful, then we know that He can be our hope in life and death. So stand and sing in Jesus' name.